0: This morning's reading is from Genesis chapter nine, beginning at verse 18 and going through to 29. And uh, also two verses from Genesis 10, uh, verse one and 32. You can find all this on pages 10, 11 and 12 of the Bibles. So it's Genesis nine, beginning at verse 18. The sons of Noah. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves. Will he, sorry, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers? He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. Now, Genesis 10, verse 1 and verse 32. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, <coughs> Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood, These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Now you can see many of the locations that are mentioned in chapter 10 on the map in the outline on the inside of the service leaflet. This is the word of the Lord. So
1: you... um the map's quite handy, but the outline's even handier, which is on the, on the reverse um, side of the, the song sheet. And we'll have a look at this together and see how we might profit by it. Well, D. H. Lawrence once said, If only we could have two lives, the first in which to make our mistakes and the second in which to profit by them. Well, God didn't make any mistakes, but he does seem to have had two goes at getting civilization off the ground. His first go was with Adam and Eve, who he wanted to, first of all, multiply and then subdue, manage, steward the earth. But they and their descendants so muck things up that God decided to wipe them out um, to start all over again. So the passage that we're looking at this morning is really God's restart program. He has another go, this time through Noah and his family to subdue the world and to populate the planet. Sadly, as we'll see, the new start met with the familiar human attempts to frustrate God. So chapter 10 shows us how the restart got off to a good start in some respects. It's a passage which, as we can see, is a genealogy of Noah's sons, although it's a partial one. The writer is much more concerned with the geography rather than the genealogy. He's not so interested in the family history. He's concerned to explain the origins of his known world. And Genesis is... uh, compiled by Moses, about the 13th century BC. And at that time, their known world would have extended from Spain in the very west, Tarshish. Gibraltar in Arabic is Tarek, and you can maybe imagine the connections between Tarshish and Tariq. Anyway, and then the other end is India. Did you know there was a Jewish community in India in the time of Solomon? and up into the north, to the Black Sea, and down to Ethiopia in the south. So it was pretty extensive. But, of course, it doesn't mention the Red Indians of North America, the Japanese, or the Zulus of South Africa. He is unaware of their existence. But that, of course, doesn't mean that they didn't exist. But you might say, what about the reference in 918, and 1032, to Noah's three sons being the ancestors of all the people of the earth. It says all. Doesn't that include the Native American Indians, the Zulus, and the Orientals? Well, not necessarily. Quite often in the Bible, all does not mean every single person. So, for example, take Genesis 41, 57, and the days of the famine, when Joseph was the grand vizier of Egypt. It says, all the world came to Egypt. Or take 1 Kings 10, 24, we have all the world comes to Solomon. What the writer's really saying is that people from all the known world come, not that everybody from everywhere came. Or, take in the New Testament, Luke 2, 1 to 3, all the world went to be taxed, as the King James Version uh, puts it. And quite obviously, it just means those who lived within the Roman Empire were taxed. The Romans were not able to tax those who lived in the Indian subcontinent. So, all here means all the known world from the writer's perspective. So, in verses 2 to 5, Japheth and his descendants multiply and populate Turkey and Europe. In 6 to 20, Ham's descendants multiply and populate Israel, northern part of Saudi Arabia, North Africa. And Shem's descendants in 21 to 32 multiply and populate what is today, Iran, Iraq, Syria, the Gulf states, and then as it were, um, the southern coast of, uh, of Saudi Arabia to where Yemen is today. So it's a good start, they were fruitful, they multiplied and they filled a vast area. But unfortunately, all was not well. God's plans were soon frustrated once again so in 9.18 to 28, reveal that rather than Noah controlling creation, creation comes to control him. And rather than there be, as intended, a united restart, one people together coming into being, there was very soon division, separate development. You see, sin makes barriers between people as well as barriers between people and God. So let's have a look at this rather sorry story in verses 20 to 29. Noah makes a good start in mastering creation. He was a farmer. Uh, He planted a vineyard and he made wine. So far, so good. He was doing what God wanted. He was subduing the earth, being a good manager of the world's natural resources. But things went wrong. Instead of him mastering the drink, the drink mastered him. Instead of him being in control of the alcohol, it got a hold of him. And perhaps we need to pause for a moment and just remind ourselves of the other side to the very kind of popular (coughs) images we have portrayed to us every day. There is a kind of a great bonhomie in going to Twickenham and watching a rugby match and having a beer even if it's in a plastic pint glass. But there is another side. It's nice to have a glass of wine as you have a meal. But you could end up sharing a whole bottle between two of you, or two bottles between two of you. There's nothing wrong with alcohol in itself. And uh, God wouldn't have invented the uh, opportunity to uh, uh, turn uh, grapes into wine and hops and stuff into beer but there is a very sad side to it. There's in fact as many people in Basingstoke AA as there are in house groups. There are more people in Basingstoke AA, or there were at least when I last uh, inquired, than there are in church here this morning. Two to three million people drink to excess. Between one and one and a half million people have a drink problem. Although the pubs may be closing at quite a rapid rate, two or three a week apparently, consumption of alcohol actually increases. Alcohol results in 10,000 premature deaths a year. The days lost in kind of the country's productivity is worth about 10 billion pounds a year and two out of three driving fatalities at night because they're over the drink drive limit and everyone with an alcoholic problem has friends and family and so many people are adversely affected, and much good is done by organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous and others in helping them. It is all too easy, sadly, to misuse God's creation gifts. Well, Noah got drunk, and as so easily can happen, it leads him to some kind of expression of immorality. A few drinks, and he did what he otherwise wouldn't have done if he was sober. It says in verse 21 he became drunk, took off his clothes, and lay naked in his tent. Well, no one's quite sure exactly what that's supposed to mean. Maybe there's a hint there that he was some kind of exhibitionist, a kind of flasher, as the popular press might call him today. Maybe he exposed himself. Whatever it was, it led to sin, um, particularly in in the way in which Ham responded to it. Ham obviously commits some kind of sin, although it's not abundantly clear what it was. Some suggest that he may have shown indecent curiosity. Others that the expression saw his nakedness is some kind of euphemism for sexual relations. Others suggest that Ham's sin was that he publicised his father's sin and that he laughed at him rather than honoured him and in so doing broke the fourth commandment and broke his relationship with him. Well, Shem and Japheth here, they don't stare and they cover up their father's embarrassing state of affairs without embarrassing him any further by either looking or by telling others about this sorry episode. I'm sure what uh, Shem and Japheth do right is probably the opposite of what Ham did wrong. But when Noah wakes up and finds out what's gone on, he turns into a prophet, verse 25. He curses Canaan, Ham's son, predicting he will be a slave one day of his other son's descendants. He blesses Shem, and indeed it was Abraham, one of Shem's descendants, who God chose to be the father and founder of the people of God. And Japheth was predicted to increase and his descendants were prophesied to live with Shem. And again, that too was fulfilled in the Old Testament. The Philistines, who were descendants, are found living on the southern coastal strip of Israel. Chapter 10, verse 5 tells us. And it's fulfilled in the New Testament too. Shem's descendants were Israel. Israel is the Old Testament church. In the New Testament, the Gentiles, descendants of Shapheth, are added to Israel to form the new church. So we can see how two prophecies were fulfilled. What about the third one, the one to Ham's descendants, Canaan, to be slaves of the others? How was that fulfilled? Now you might be surprised to know that uh, Christians in the uh, 18th and 19th century used this to justify slavery, particularly the slave trade between here, West Africa and Central and North America. It's also used in the past by some elements of the Dutch Reformed Church to justify apartheid and racial discrimination. Now, is that possible? Well, I think our answer has to be absolutely no. You see, they are trying to assume that Negroes are descendants from Ham. But there's no mention of any Negroid race at all. And it's impossible to prove that they were included amongst Ham's descendants. All the nations listed in the genealogies are Caucasian. None are either Negroid or Mongoloid, the other two main anthropological groups in the world. The reason being, they didn't, have, uh, they didn't live in the writer's known world, so there's no mention of black Africans or Chinese, Japanese or other Orientals. In any case, the prophecy did come true. The people who subsequently lived in the land of Canaan did in fact become the slaves of the Israelites. Judges 9.23 tells us how Joshua enslaved the Gibeonites and the Gibeonites were descendants of Ham. And thirdly, quite how any supposed Christian could possibly promote racial division when the New Testament is so clear that racial distinctions between Christians are, in fact, irrelevant. But when people want to try and do something which is contrary to a clear understanding of the Bible, they are ingenious, both in those days and in our days, at twisting the whole of the Bible to suit their own desires. And of course, just to cap it all, you can remember in 1 Timothy 1, 9, listed amongst the ungodly, unholy, law-breaking rebels, sinful and irreligious, are slave traders. So, apart from the fact that this has got nothing to say in support of slavery or apartheid, what does it have to say to us Christians today? Well, I think there are two things worth drawing out. The first of all is a warning. This story of Noah's reminds us how easy it is for even Christian believers to fall. It was okay to have a vineyard. It was okay to have a drink. In fact, in their culture, a dose of kind of uh, alcohol in with the water had a purificatory uh, role. But Noah slipped up. He got drunk. And he did something, we don't know quite what, that was shameful. Now Noah had just been wonderfully saved by God and yet he so easily slips into sin. It's hard to believe. We probably think that if such a stupendous thing had happened to us, that we'd never sin for the rest of our lives. God would be so real. But that just shows our unreality. Because any Christian can fall. I can think of a young student who had been brought to faith in quite a wonderful way, and who was used very much by God in his Christian union, and even in giving talks to young people. But a girl in his college fancied him, and at a party, he had too much to drink. He was drunk, and he ended up in bed with her. She got pregnant. He promised to marry her if she got rid of the baby. That, of course, turned out to be a lie, because as soon as the course finished, he was off like a shot. You see, the devil caught him just like he caught Noah in an unguarded moment when his guard was down, when he wasn't on the lookout. Instead of being under the control of Christ, their lives went out of control. Instead of being filled with the Spirit, they were filled with drink. The lesson of Noah is that any of us no matter how spiritual we are, can so easily fall. And the second lesson is to note how quickly sin spreads. It's incredibly rapid. Noah sinned, then Ham sinned, and then their descendants got in a mess. Till when you get to the days of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, things have turned out to be dreadful. So what a responsibility that places on us if we are parents. We can affect our children and subsequent generations for good and ill. We rightly expect the church to give a clear unambiguous word. We rightly expect our schools to give good discipline, wholesome teaching, and good examples from the staff. But at the end of the day, the primary responsibility for our children's upbringing lies, of course, with us. It's in the home that the explanation for Christian morality and the moral example to back it up have to be given. The home is the primary place of learning for good or ill the next generation. So two simple lessons from these chapters. The first is simply to watch in case we fall and the second is to remember that our behaviour can have long term consequences on our children and through our children to their children. And that can be for good or ill. Amen.